When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. China is something that actually unites Republicans and Democrats. We have a huge problem with cybersecurity and it's growing. We've got to have wealthier people and corporations paying more of a fair share. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. President Biden likes to be the big thing. He likes to put out the big concepts. There's still a long way to go with this flat tax. We have to break apart the month. This isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. This is an American issue. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. From deep inside the Beltway, Bloomberg Sound On is live from our Washington, D.C. Bureau, our third city in three days, and the final destination for yours truly. If you were not with us last week, I am your new host, Joe Matthew, and I'm so glad to be back in Washington here in Bloomberg's D.C. Bureau. Thank you for meeting me here on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Monday. It's been a busy day overseas and Bloomberg is fully deployed to bring you the latest from President Biden's trip overseas. The G7 has ended. A NATO summit is wrapping as well. And coming up, we'll be joined by Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger of Virginia, a former CIA agent who now serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Later, we'll talk with Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Boyd Matheson, former chief of staff for Senator Mike Lee. And thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. We begin today with America's foreign policy. As President Biden moves from the G7 meeting in Cornwall to the NATO summit in Brussels, where the conversation was again focused on countries that were not in the room, China and Russia. And we're joined today by Representative Abigail Spanberger of Virginia, a former CIA agent who now serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Congresswoman, thank you for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Thank you so much for having me. President Biden did not need to say a lot in his message that he delivered today, a news conference that he held a short time ago at NATO headquarters in Brussels, a starkly different message than the one delivered by former President Trump, who threatened to withdraw from NATO. He called the alliance obsolete. Congresswoman, the communique that was issued by NATO mentions cyber warfare. It mentions artificial intelligence, new missile technology. None of those sound very obsolete. That's right. Uh, and what we saw from President Biden's press conference and certainly from the results of this meeting uh, are world leaders who are focused on contending with the threats that we face currently and the threats that we anticipate facing into the future. And, and frankly, we have recent examples uh, between election interference, the solar wind cyber attack, uh, the attempt uh, to murder opposition leader uh, Mr. Navalny, 
we, we have a clear view of the challenges that we face as it relates to Russia. Uh, and, um, and I was pleased to see world leaders um, focused on, on how we will work together into the future to contend with these threats. I'd like to hear from President Biden from a short time ago. We have sound on the president from Brussels talking about his meeting with Vladimir Putin. Uh, that's, of course, set for Wednesday. This was asked about more than any other issue uh, based on my listening to this uh, news conference. The president saying that he will make clear that there are areas where we can cooperate. I shared with our allies that I'll convey to pres- what I'll convey to President Putin, that I'm not looking for conflict with Russia but that we will respond if Russia continues its harmful activities. So let's dig into Russia a little bit here, Congresswoman. The NATO communique says Russia's aggressive actions constitute a threat to Euro-Atlantic security. Is that a military threat or a cyber threat? It's an all-of-the-above threat. It's a potentially a military threat. It's a cyber threat. It's you know a threat to democratic norms and a threat to the normal functioning of 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 countries as they are supposed to be engaging together. And um, and certainly Russia's aggressive tactics towards the United States, towards our, our NATO allies, are significant and um, and continue to threaten not just, uh, you know, the individual nations of NATO, but but the um, uh, the alliance altogether. We have a story in the Bloomberg terminal right now, representative from our White House team. The headline is Biden's goal with Putin. Don't let U.S.-Russian ties worsen. Is that how we qualify success, anything that doesn't make it worse? You know, I, I, I think there's probably some, there's a, a fair element to that. You know, I, I think that we should go in um, with very um, straightforward standards. I, I, I don't think that a, a meeting with an authoritarian leader who sought to undermine our elections more than once, who has attacked uh, and hacked uh, U.S. Um, U.S. companies and sought to, you know, create um, uh, the capabilities to undermine um, government uh, communication. I, I don't think that that is a normal meeting where there are kind of set forth goals and and things that we look to achieve as measures of success. I think that it's important that the president go into that meeting from a position of strength. Uh, make clear what our American expectations of the Russian Federation uh, stand up for our elections and our democracy um, and go on from there, Uh, because so much of what President Biden will or will not say is going to be predicated on what President Putin does or does not say. Uh, So I I think the strategy of at this point, let's not make the relationship worse. is, uh, You know, certainly I hope for more, as, as I'm sure the administration does. Um, but I think so much will be dependent on uh, the way that President Putin comes to that meeting and, and frankly, what what he's willing to discuss uh, or where he's you know willing to meet us. We're talking with Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger of Virginia here on Bloomberg Sound On. I'd like to hear from Congressman Michael McCall, Republican, of course, from Texas, was speaking on ABC's This Week about the meeting, suggesting that that President Biden was approaching uh, this meeting from a position of weakness. He referred to America's uh, capitulation on on Russia's aggression, including the jailing and attempted poisoning of Alexei Navalny, which came up in that news conference today. We have sound on Michael McCall. You want to go into these talks in a position of strength, not of weakness. I think he's going in a little bit out of weakness because he's made all these concessions, including Navalny. 
Congresswoman, you were a CIA agent, as I mentioned, in a former life. Gives you a unique perspective. What kind of a threat is Russia? <laughs> well, we walk into a I meeting mean, like this based on what you just heard. Yeah, so the, the Russia is a significant threat. Um, and, and what I know about this president is this president is going to be and has been um, talking with intelligence professionals, talking with diplomats, knowing full well everything the United States does or doesn't know about Vladimir Putin as an individual, uh, Vladimir Putin as, as a leader and his plans and intentions. And I, I just I, 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 I have to just remind people that we had a former U.S. president stand on stage next to Vladimir Putin and say that he doubted U.S. intelligence services, the CIA, the FBI, NSA, and believed Vladimir Putin. Um, and so the fact that we have President Biden going into this meeting, eyes wide open, having done his homework, not just in advance of this meeting, but frankly, in his decades of work on this, this is the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, eyes wide open about the person he is meeting, the type of leader he is, the aggressive actions um, that, that he has led against our country. Uh, and so I I think that the difference couldn't be starker between President Biden and, and his predecessor when it comes to President Biden walking into this meeting from an informed standpoint and from a standpoint of strength uh, versus a, a leader who would sit there and denigrate his own intelligence services in order to placate an authoritarian adversary. Let me ask you about China, Congresswoman. We'll pick through these one at a time. Russia obviously is its own issue and will have its own meeting this week. But China got a lot of talk in this communique coming out of the, the NATO meeting. It reads, China's growing influence and international policies can present challenges that we need to address together as an alliance. It makes references to China's expanding navy and military operations. Has NATO changed its tune on China? Where There was barely a line on China the last summit in 2019. I, I wouldn't say that NATO's changed its tune. I think the difference is that in the past, it was clear that our NATO allies were unified. Our NATO allies were um, working together and focused on the same strategic mission of, of uh, mutual defense and our, the strength of our uh, member nations' alliances, be they political, be they military, uh, or be they economic. Uh, those were the underpinnings that allowed for NATO to be a, a, a clear, um, like, powerful and or strong en entity. Um, some of that came into uh, real doubt, as you mentioned in the in, in the beginning portion of this interview, when mentioning what the former president had said about NATO, uh, his expressed doubt, his insults uh, towards the alliance. And so I think that... When we had nations, the United States, um, you know, prior to the former president, um, engaged as a true partner within NATO, it isn't. It wasn't as necessary to to draw out all of the lines of challenges that we face sure. with China. Because well, it may also the, be that China is a greater threat than it was in 2019. Also, you know, China has been consistent in continuing to grow in its influence and in its efforts and its focus on. Uh, building partnerships. Uh, it, we see it through its vaccine diplomacy, certainly through its Belt and Road. Um, we have seen China is laser focused on strengthening its position in the world at the expense of other world leaders. 
um, and what China doesn't have and what our strategic strength is, is our partnership with our NATO allies, with our other European allies, with, um, you know, our, our neighbors to the north and south. These are the strengths that we as a nation have. Um, and so seeing President Biden out on the world stage, um, meeting with world leaders, asserting the strength of American leadership again um, is incredibly important um, as, a, as a foundational piece of our ability um, as a country, as the United States of America, but also as um, a leader of others in, in contending with an ever more aggressive yeah. China. Um, and we're watching this unfold in real time here on Bloomberg Radio. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger of Virginia, many thanks for talking foreign policy with us today on Bloomberg Sound On. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look. Here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein. It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. I'm Joe Matthew, live from Washington. Thank you for joining us on Bloomberg Sound On. One of the biggest issues talked about at the G7 over the weekend was a minimum corporate tax rate of 15%, which finance chiefs endorsed. And there are other details to be worked out. Here's President Biden with Sound On from the G7. This agreement's going to help uh, arrest the race to the bottom that's been going on among nations attracting uh, uh, corporate investment at the expense of priorities uh, like protecting our workers and investing in infrastructure. It could generate $150 billion for world governments, according to Bloomberg, this 15 percent minimum corporate tax. But a tax screening of big tech companies this morning on the Bloomberg Terminal is giving us a better sense of which companies could take the hardest hit if this happens. And joining us to talk about it is Bloomberg reporter Laura Davison, a specialist on taxes. Thanks for being here, Laura. Good Monday. Thanks for having me. We're going to name some names here. But, Laura, it's important to set the backdrop, right? The fact is G7 countries have been cutting taxes in recent years and none more than the U.S. So this represents a big change. Yes, you know, for years, uh, com- countries have been competing with each other, saying, look, you know, we'll offer you a better tax rate, more tax incentives if you come to us. Ireland has really been the big winner here. And just in the past couple of years, and particularly after the pandemic, countries are looking around, they realize they need more revenue, and this whole race to the bottom on corporate taxation isn't really serving their purposes. It isn't generating new investment. It is just sort of reallocating, uh, you know, where the, the all the companies are going, and they're going to the lowest tax companies. So everyone came, came to the table and said, look, let's set a minimum rate no matter where in the world people are it's at least a 15 percent tax rate and this mm-hmm. will uh, end a lot of the, the the tax accounting tricks that have been happening for years so layer on the 15 percent and some companies it looks like could feel a much bigger impact including some highly profitable multinational companies that pay relatively low rates they're going to sound familiar bloomberg screening brings up names like nvidia the chip designer has been a darling on Wall Street and Tencent, another one, the Chinese Internet company. These are two of the hottest growth stocks on Wall Street. 
Yes, and this would really, um, you know, be a huge game changer here. You know, also Apple has traditionally had a very low tax rate. They would also get caught up in this. Um, another one that isn't on the list but is really, uh, you know, kind of in the sights of all the policymakers here is Amazon. They, um, you know, have low tax rates, uh, but they also have a relatively th- a low profit margin, and that's another one of the criteria that they're uh, uh, that the policymakers are using to determine who will tax Amazon because, you know, on one side of the business they're a retailer, on the other side they have their very profitable cloud business. They're trying to find a way that they can uh, get Amazon roped into this just based, based on their you know tech side of the business and, and mm-hmm. leave the retail side out of that. Uh, this is proving to be a very thorny issue and a, a political hot topic uh, around the globe. So investors then, from that perspective, the investment perspective, would have to do their homework. It's not just that all big growth companies would be taken down by this. Yeah, and you can see from the company side, they're looking at their own profile, their uh, you know where they're taxed, what their tax rate is, mm-hmm. uh, and and trying to figure out how they could get out of scope here, that they could could dodge this tax. And this is going to be this game of cat and mouse for the next uh, next several months as they kind of figure out what the final rules are going to be here, and then as, as countries go to actually implement this, they're going to be figuring out you know how do we you know we might get hit with this tax, but how do we minimize the blunt of the the impact. As we talk with Bloomberg reporter Laura Davison, let's talk more about the where. What happens to companies based in in places like you mentioned Ireland? How about Singapore, Switzerland? Would that be even worse? Yeah, so you know, for these com- uh, for these companies based in, the, in those countries with lower taxes, they would see their you know their effective tax rate go up if this yeah. plan you know gets implemented as envisioned. You know, in places where they have the lowest tax rate, so kind of the t- your classic tax havens, places like Bermuda, Cayman mm-hmm. Islands, where there's zero percent corporate rate. Those you know your cruise companies, they're going to get hit really hard by this. You know, in some places like uh, like or in, like Ireland, where the rate is you know twelve and a half percent, they'd see a slight increase. Uh, but maybe they say you know look uh, in some other countries. Uh, we have some higher tax stuff. We have some stuff in some higher tax companies. We'll move that to Ireland. There's a way to, to game the system here. The point, <laughs> however, is. is that it's a lot. There's a lot less gaming that can go on. There's more uh, of an even playing field right now. Uh, the playing field is, is all over the place with lots of places to get uh, to trip and fall. So, Laura, is Capitol Hill the reality check here? None of this is done, right? Do, do we have any reason to believe that Republicans in Congress will sign off on a 15 percent minimum tax? None of this is done. All we have right now is an agreement to agree to something at some point at some later date. Yeah. Uh, once they get a high-level political agreement, it has to get through Congress. Republicans have already basically said, no, we're not voting for this. We don't support uh, this this plan. And so it will have to pass on Democratic votes alone. And as we all know, super tight majorities. Uh, so this is going to be really be uh, you know something that Pelosi and Schumer are going to have to figure out how they're going to get it through and you know appease to people like Manchin and Cinema mm-hmm. that have been wary of, of tax increases across the board. Remembering President Biden proposed hiking the tax rate to 28, the U.S. tax rate to 28 percent for infrastructure, and that's been deemed a red line for Republicans. It puts a little perspective on the 15 percent number. Yeah, and the U.S. is still planning to move forward with uh, with the 28 percent, you know, assuming it could get through Congress. So we're yeah. going to see you know, lots of rates changing. They're not all going to be the same. But the U.S. says, look, well, you know, at least this is what Democrats say. This is a really good place to do business. You know, people will, will still do business here, even if our rate is a little bit higher or even in some cases a lot bit higher than, than what the minimum would be elsewhere in other countries. Our producer on Bloomberg Sound On, Christine Barada, told me you were the expert on this, Laura, and you are. I'm so glad that you could come in to talk to us about it. This is a big story that's going to be going likely for many more weeks, and we'd love to stay in touch with you as we learn more. We're joined by our panel on Bloomberg Sound On. Of course, that would be Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan Zeno. And today, we're joined as well by Boyd Matheson, former chief of staff for Senator Mike Lee. Great to have both of you with us. Good Monday. I always learn a lot by listening to the questions at these news conferences. 
And today, the most frequent question was about Wednesday's meeting with Vladimir Putin. Uh, maybe we should not be surprised uh, by that genie, but everybody's trying to telegraph what's going to happen in this thing. And President Biden is keeping his cards close to the vest. He is. He is. And and I think, you know, that's the question I would have asked him as well, because this is really, you know, sort of the culmination of this entire trip. What I think we're hearing from President Biden today and what we heard from the secretary of state over the weekend was they are really, number one, trying to make the case that there's not going to be deliverables out of this meeting. But more importantly, that they are not looking to confront Russia. They're not looking to confront Putin. They want to try to work with him. And this is what I'm very curious about, because on the one hand, I think there's expectation that Joe Biden will be tougher on Putin than Donald Trump was. And we know got a lot of criticism for being too soft on Russia. But by the same token, you listen to Blinken, you listen to Biden over the weekend. And today we're hearing an awful lot about wanting to find common ground. And so I'm curious to see how that is received. And I would just add that, you know, you have some European countries who are concerned that Biden wants to sort of skip over Russia and get to China as our biggest threat. And in doing so is missing the threat that Russia and Putin really pose. Boyd Matheson, it's good to have you with us. Vladimir Putin, I believe, has spoken with five, sat down, spoken with five U.S. presidents. No one expects much, if anything, to come from this. So what's the point for sitting down in the same room? Is this going to be a staring contest? Uh, you know, I, I think it is important, especially for many of our allies, to, to see this kind of engagement. I think Jeannie alluded to uh, a lot of the things in, in terms of Putin. The, the words matter. The, the engagement matters. If we don't engage, I think uh, signaling that we're just going to focus on China would actually give Putin a lot of latitude to continue to do many of the things he is already doing uh, that we should confront him on. I do think the president has taken an approach of we, uh, starting with the G7 and the NATO, and, and so it's very much a we conversation rolling into Vladimir Putin as opposed to a mano a mano uh, U.S. versus Russia kind of conversation. I do know that one grumbling coming out uh, from both the G7 and NATO allies is that the the administration may have made a little verbal mistake in in labeling the Putin conversation as a summit, hmm. thus elevating it uh, in the eyes of some and giving Putin a, a stage to, to do some of his work from. So a lot of interesting things to continue to watch there. Yeah, the optics are really something. If you follow this type of thing, you call it a summit and there won't even be a bilateral news conference after Regini. We talked about this, I believe, on Friday. It appears that President Biden will, in fact, meet the press alone after they meet. What kind of a signal is that? I think it is to sort of address what what you and Boyd were just talking about, which is this concern among some of our European allies that he again is not, you know, sort of rewarding, if you will, Vladimir Putin after some really deplorable behavior on his part. So I think they don't want to put Biden on the same stage with Putin for that reason. They also don't want to repeat of an earlier uh, quote unquote summit with Trump and and Putin. So I think there I think it's a smart move not to put them together. But, uh, you know, I would just add here that, you know, Joe Biden, I think, has a tougher challenge here than than Putin. 
he has got to address Putin and address a host of issues. I mean, the list I was putting together today of issues, it, there's like 20 key issues he has to address him with. And yet he also wants to try to find this common ground and sort of threading that needle is going to be very, very tough in the face of these European allies, the NATO and, and the G7 members who want him to be tough on Russia, as do many people in his own party here at home. Well, Boyd, there's Russia and then there's China. And I would like to hear from you quickly on this after reading the document, the communique that came out of the NATO meeting that points to China's growing influence and in international policies, it says, can present challenges that we need to address together as an alliance. It refers to China's growing military, its growing navy. And this appears to be as important to NATO as it is the threat from Russia. Boyd, which has you more worried? Yeah, you know they're uh, they're both really concerning. The uh, the Russian one is more a little under the radar right now, as China seems to be on the ascent. Uh, but I think in terms of our our allies and alliances, I think this is such an interesting period of time because if you look just from the United States standpoint, uh, of course we've got to go head to head with Russia on a host of things. We've got to go head to head China on a host of things, and yet. We need both of those countries if we're going to deal with places like North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is a, a really interesting time for international leadership. Uh, and it is really being able to navigate allies and alliances, uh, who, what, when and where uh, is really the key leadership challenge, I think, for the Biden administration. Well, so, Jeannie, then we'll, why don't we advance that ball just a little bit? Should President Biden and, and if so, if yes, when should he be meeting with the president of China? I think he should. I think conversation is always important, but I think that's going to be a little ways off. Um, you know, it, I think this this meeting to sort of reestablish our ties and to show, as he keeps saying, that America is back and we're going to be working with our allies is critical. The, the China question, I think, is fascinating because for a long time I've been saying that it was hard for me to differentiate Biden's sort of approach to China versus Trump's. There didn't seem Mm -hmm. to be a lot of space there. But I think with this week, we are starting to see some differences there. And I think in particular, we see him with this Build Back Better World, I think is a fascinating way for him to try to compete with the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, it's a long way off. We don't know if it's going to be fully funded or what's going to happen. But that's at, you know, in this communique. And I think those kinds of approaches where he's trying to use that endless frontier bill that's moving through Congress yeah. and sort of in, invite our allies to come in. That, I think, is a really important distinction between the sort of um, pr- approach we saw the previous administration taking vis-a-vis China, which had to do with more punishment, more sanctions, more trade limitations. I'm Joe Matthew, live from Washington. Thanks for joining us as we return to the nation's capital, where they're back. House members flying back into town today with a long to-do list and not very much time. We're going to dig into that list a little bit here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Boyd Matheson with us as well today, former chief of staff for Senator Mike Lee. Thanks for spending some time with us, both of you. I'd like to start with police reform uh, since it doesn't get as much talk as some of the other priorities right now, and it's been a long road. President Biden wanted a, a police reform bill, essentially a version of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to be done by the deadline, uh, the the anniversary of George Floyd's death. We're still talking about this. Jeannie, qualified immunity remains the sticking point. Is this going anywhere? 
I, I do think there is a chance that this moves forward. I think there is the will to do this. But of course, the calendar always works against these bills in the summer. You know, I think if it doesn't get done in the next, I would say, four weeks, we're going to see it slow down dramatically. But I do still have hope on this one. You've got a lot of good people, including Tim Scott on the Republican side, Cory Booker, mm -hmm. Karen Bass, all working together on this. And so I think there is a will. And let's not forget, under the Trump administration, there was a police reform bill as well. Boyd, we've seen this play out on the state level in a number of instances uh, around the country in kind of similar fashion where there was a big rush to get something done over the summer when this was the biggest story in the country following George Floyd's death. Then the debate kind of waned as we got into different ideas here and qualified immunity is what happened to slow this down in many cases. The sticking point is as lawmakers try to make this passable for Republicans in the Senate, where is this, if anywhere? You know, I, I think this is very indicative of something that we've become all too comfortable with in the country, and that is that we're we're really good at moments, uh, but we're really lousy at forward movement. Yeah. And a lot of that is the politics of it all. And so last summer, as, as you rightly said, Joe, uh, there were a lot of moments, a lot of getting together, a lot of standing in front of cameras, a lot of photo ops uh, that everybody's going to come together around this. Uh, but of course, the hard work and heavy lifting always takes place far away from, from the spotlights and the cameras and the microphones. Uh, and I do think it is that qualified immunity that is going to be the, the sticking point. I, I am like Jeannie. I am hopeful because of people like Tim Scott, because of Cory Booker uh, and others. And the fact that this group has been together recently, uh, as was mentioned, during the uh, Donald Trump administration to get some significant criminal justice reform done. Mm -hmm. uh, I am hopeful that those same players will come together and say, hey, this is this is something that we can do. This is something we should do. And so let's just get it done. Jeannie, maybe a better way of asking this is, can, can you can you remove qualified immunity, which, of course, protects police uh, who are being sued for uh, alleged abuse? Can you remove immunity and still receive money from police unions? I, I hate to go straight for the jugular here, but is this not what we're talking about for many lawmakers who rely on endorsements uh, as well as funding? They do. It's it's a huge issue. And you see this when you talk about unions of all kinds, not just police unions, teachers unions as well. So I, I do think there is a way. It's obviously a huge sticking point. It's been incredibly controversial. Um, you know, there is a school of thought on the more Republican side that if you make police officers personally liable for misconduct while they're working, it's going to mitigate, hamper their, their work out on the street, especially when they need to be making really tough decisions. I do think that people on all sides can understand the concern there, as can those advocates for qualified immunity to be removed, because, yeah. of course, it's left these people on the ground. So I, I do think there is a way around it, but I, I'm, I'm not sure we get there at this point. I don't know Republicans will support a bill if that's, if that's in there. Is that a deal breaker, Boyd? Yeah, I think Ginny's right on this one, and, and she's right on two points. One, I, I think it could be the deal breaker. I also think the shot clock uh, is going to be the, the harder thing as we get towards that summer recess and in-state work period for most yeah. of these folks. Uh, they're going to they're gonna be back at home, and uh, the shot clock just does not favor getting this done quickly. I always love, you know it's a true Washingtonian when you hear reference to the in-state work period or the home district work period, <laughs> as opposed to recess. But there look, I, no recesses. <laughs> that's right. Uh, how about infrastructure? This is the big one. And of course, we talk about it just about every day around here. 
where are we? Jeannie, I'll start with you. The $1.2 trillion proposal by this group of bipartisan senators came out while we were on the air last Thursday. It hasn't gone anywhere, really. Granted, it hasn't been a long period of time, but some wonder if this is actually being seriously considered by the White House. Yeah, and, and I, I love to talk infrastructure, Joe, you know that, so <laughs> I, I have no problem with infrastructure summer, but I, I do think it is being seriously considered. Um, I do think the White House is thinking that they may want to do this things as we've discussed in two pieces. One, if they can work with this group of 10 senators, Republican and Democrat, to get 10 Republicans along that they do the quote-unquote hard infrastructure in this bill. That requires, though, that they're able to get a promise out of people like Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin that they will go along with the second softer, if you will, bill um, on reconciliation. And that is a big if. But I do think the White House, we're seeing some signs they're cautiously optimistic. I would say they're more optimistic than I am. I don't think we're going to get there. But we are hearing that they are at least positive about this latest offer. I'm sure you have a take on this, Boyd. $1.2 trillion. We talk about reconciliation like it's a real option, but Democrats still don't have those votes. Yeah, that's right. The, the votes still aren't there. And, uh, but, but at least we're getting to the point where we can talk specifics and we can actually come to an agreement on what infrastructure is and is not. And I think dividing this into two bills, I actually think it should be done in three bills uh, hmm. to really laser focus and then have real open debate real amendment process and real accountable votes in front of the American people and not just, you know, a gang of five or a gang of 10 uh, behind closed doors. Uh, you know, we've, we've been debating out here in the, the state of Utah if the Jazz beating the L.A. Clippers was part of the infrastructure, critical infrastructure uh, for the downtown area here. And, I, and we think it is, by the way, just if you're keeping the score at home. Uh, so how do you cut these into bills? Focus bills. You sit three bills. So do you want roads, bridges, tunnels in one of them uh, and, and then various forms or various definitions of infrastructure in the others? Yes. Yeah. Then getting into into those kinds of things and then dealing with the other parts in terms of tax reform and some of the other things in terms of health care uh, that are clearly a different kind of uh, infrastructure, to be sure, uh, should be in a, in a third tranche. I'm going to throw a wild card at both of you guys. Here. We've got a Federal Reserve meeting this week. Some people think it's a snoozer. Some people think it's going to be critically important on the road ahead for interest rates and for the stock market, for financials of, of all sorts. I wonder about the political side of this, Jeannie. Should President Biden start worrying about rising interest rates? Could they put the economic recovery at risk just as we're getting into something good? I do think he should be concerned, and I know that that's not a very popular opinion among certain parts, but I do think he should be concerned about both inflation and higher interest rates. Um, you know, he he is walking a very fine line here. Um, he is asking for, you know, altogether about $4 trillion in spending. And of course, you were talking about, you know, massive tax increases if they could pass it to pay for that. Um, that becomes that much harder if we see rising inflation and we see rising interest rates. So I do think he's got to be concerned. And again, this gets back to what Boyd was saying about the clock. That becomes critical here. Well, we've got unprecedented stimulus already in the system, Boyd, unprecedented levels of liquidity. We're talking about another $1.2 trillion here. Interest rates sure look like they want to move. How much of a risk is that for a recovery if you're running this White House? Yeah, I think the biggest uh, 
challenge of the recovery would be if we just continue on that uh, that rate in terms, not just in terms of, of interest, but more importantly, in, in terms of the inflation. Uh, I think nothing will cause the American people to recoil a little more coming out of a pandemic uh, than if they really see those inflation rates soaring. And, and so to me, that's the it is a double-edged sword to be sure, uh, but I think we, we've got to be careful in terms of the inflation, uh, because if that stumbers, if that stalls the economy, uh, then the administration is going to have more issues than they will know what to deal with, and it will be timed uh, to hit right about at a midterm. And so they've got to be very worried in the White House in making sure they control that um, and at least do what they can to, to keep things moving along. Wait, the timing comes down to everything here, Jeannie, with the midterms. Just imagine how that could potentially collide. And surely it's something that this president and this Federal Reserve uh, are considering. Not that the Fed is looking at elections and markets, as they say, but you've got policymakers here. Biden administration economic policymakers driving some of these decisions. That's right. And I always think about the students that I talk to daily. You know, I'm old enough to remember inflation when it was bad. Huh. There, It is a generational issue, though. Yeah. They do not, they have no sense of what you and Boyd are talking about. You go into the store and milk is so high and all these things. That has a real political impact, to your point. A generation of people who grew up with 0% interest rates, and they think that houses always sell for $100,000 more than they're listed. It's great to have both of you with us. What a great conversation with Jeannie and with Boyd here on Bloomberg Sound On, our political panel today. Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Boyd Matheson. I'm Joe Matthew. A great talk. We'll meet you back here tomorrow on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.